0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm
1: Glenn McDormand. This episode, we're discussing the third section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. I'm pretty excited about it, so let's just jump in.
0: Now, as we brought up many times during the recap, I'd really like to organize our discussion around names of new characters in this story. I'm just going to start with the first new name we're given, which is Nerissa. This is a name that Shakespeare uses in the play The Merchant of Venice. And Glenn, you have a fantastic novella that uses also something else from this play uh, that your story is called The Quality of Mercy, which is a famous speech given by Portia in this play as well. And I recommend all of our listeners to check out Glenn's story. But the name is really derived from the Greek for sea nymph. Last chapter, we have explicit reference to wood nymphs. Now we have sea nymphs. And apart from the nymph connection, you brought up the great connection to Phaedria's father and the merchant of Venice. But do you see anything else going on with this name that you'd like to talk about and what it's really meant to evoke for us as a reader? Well,
1: first of all, thanks for the plug of my own work. I was totally unexpected. I did not realize we were going to be finding so much about The Merchant of Venice here in this novella. You know, when I was thinking about this as we were getting ready to do our coverage of this great story, thinking about all of the literary references that he makes, I just didn't remember that this one was in there. But it is so important. The... Merchant of Venice is a story concerned with identity uh, that is set in a coastal city that is very much invested in colonialism and money. That is really the milieu that Wolf is using here is straight out of Merchant of Venice and I love that he gives us this clue
0: here. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's fantastic extra literary reference. It's outside the text but it's it, it evokes something in the careful reader. And also what I love about literary illusions that I think is often overlooked in many English classes is that they're really just book recommendations from a writer. <laughs> and one of the best ways to just dig deep in, into reading is to, to look up some of these illusions and say like, oh, I'm interested in that story. Read what your favorite authors are, are reading, because it's only going to open your world to them and open your world in general in a great way. So read The Merchant of Venice if you haven't. Um, the next name we come across here is Aubrey Vale. The first thing that happens here is also a bit of Shakespearean farce taking place, where the name is assumed to be that of a man, but it turns out it is the name of a woman. It's Aunt Janine. This name is derived from the German. It was used in the kind of Norman French language, and, and it, it combines these two words for elf and power, so like the ruler of the elves, or or, or something like that. Veil vale could refer to concealment, but also to like a barrier that separates two two spaces. So off the top of my head, I can think of two meanings to this name. One is simple that that name Aubrey Veil vale, used as a nom de plume is her dig at her role in the house, that she is the true hidden ruler of this home, especially as we've seen these nymph or kind of magical creature references all over the place as they relate to the women in the house. But also, what would it mean in reference to the aboriginals if we think of them as elfin, shapeshifters, changeling, and this sort of thing?
1: Thinking back to the way that the talks about Vale's hypothesis with the narrator, when it's first brought up, she's dismissive of it. And it turns out, or at least it seems at this point, that in fact, she's the originator of it. I'm interested there in that dynamic, why she doesn't own up to that herself with the narrator, why that is something she is veiling from the narrator uh, to begin with. But then also, I think that raises this question of what she dismisses about the theory is that it's based on absolutely no evidence. But given that the name that she presumably has chosen for herself as a a gnome de plume literally means something like fairy queen or fairy king, really, but fairy queen will say in this case, one wonders, is she an ABO and does she know it?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is the question that looking into this name really evokes. But I also think we're meant to ask something about the world in general, because Wolf is having fun with pronouns here. And we have this kind of right with the Merchant of Venice reference that this is kind of a classic farcical thing. So I want to ask you, is Wolf doing this to just put himself in the stream of that kind of farce? Is this a, a just a funny thing? Or does this ambiguity in gender really say something about the world or the known universe that these people are traveling in?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. Why switching genders here? One, we have to note that this is a story itself written in the early 1970s, when there would have been very few women scientists, especially in the sort of hard sciences like this. So this simply may be an expectation that Wolfe had of his readership. But I do think that Wolfe really wants us to be thinking about identities and especially about our capacity to assume our own identities. The assumption of identities is really what's at play in Vale's hypothesis to begin with. But there is also this theme or this motif going on of these binaries, right? And it is very much clear that Madame and Maitre, are two sides of a coin. Well, why not use that in the gnome diploma that she's going to take when she's writing this scientific literature, just in terms of keeping with the motif, aside from any sort of world building?
0: Yeah, and as you bring up identity, I mean, this is a classic sort of identity problem. I mean, that problem really is rooted in the question of Dr. Aubrey Vale being one Type of person, but like a public persona, and this character Aunt Janine being another one. And does that make her two people or one person? And is it two consciousnesses inhabiting her? The question I'm really getting at is the classic philosophy of mind question about identity, which is when you look up and you see the morning star, is it Venus or is it the morning star? And what level? does context or knowledge really play in our apprehension of a subject? And there's a real deep identity game, I think, that's going on here, both in the misunderstanding around the gender, but also in the narrator's ability to comprehend his aunt, just in general, as Aunt Janine, as the matron of the house. But he also knows who Vale is before he meets her. So there's there's just this wonderful complexity happening. Well, let's move on. The next name we get is 666 Sultan Bank. I mentioned that Sultan Bank means acrobat earlier on, so I don't really know what to do with that in relation to the 666, other than like a bunch of weird. Be horror movies like *Carnivals of Soul* and or something like that. I don't know if Wolf was watching those. He probably was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but six 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 itself is an obvious allusion to the number of the beast, the apocalyptic representation of Satan or the Antichrist in the Bible. Now, we already know about the symbol of Cerberus that protects the house. It's the guard of the underworld that keeps the souls of the underworld from escaping. And the heads of Cerberus are mapped onto the members of the household explicitly in this section. And now we have an address that is explicitly identified as being associated with the worst type of evil in Christian mythology. So I don't think we need to belabor that too much, but can we make a guess at who, if anyone, is the antichrist in this story? Who is the beast? Is that something we can guess at at this point?
1: Well, I don't know that it's something we can guess at quite at this point, but I don't think that's ever stopped us before and it shouldn't now. You know, I don't have a strong feeling about this right now. Clearly, from the narrator's perspective, the most villainous person in the text is his father. But I have to say that my money is actually on the narrator himself, right? That this is the romance building of the Antichrist, perhaps.
0: I think so, too. And I think that these abos, given this kind of question, but also the allusions we're going to get to in just a little bit about the soul, that the abos might be a type of holy creature.
1: Right. There's a couple of things that might be going on with the abbos, depending on whether or not Vale's hypothesis turns out to be true. But one of the things that might be going on, and especially if Vale's hypothesis is not true, is that the abos are the innocent victims of villainous colonialism. And at the very least, then, that makes them martyrs of a sort, if not necessarily angelic. But we have been getting all of this nymph imagery, this sort of nature spirit imagery about the abos, but also elsewhere in the story. And I I do think that there is actually something maybe not quite angelic, uh, but something spiritually beautiful about the story that David imagines of the abo's religious rituals, for example. So, So yes, I do think that there might actually be a way to be seen kind of the tripartite world here, where there is underworld, there's world, and then there's heaven.
0: That imagery does all seem to be at play here. Yeah, we're going to get to heaven in just three names here. So uh, right. <laughs> so the next name that comes up is Dr. Marsh. We don't know his full name at this point in the story, though we can guess at it because the next novella is called A Story by John V. Marsh. The best I could do with this is that it's German for March. Anything here? Well, I mean, that means border.
1: So this is the thing that stands between two worlds, which might be what abos are doing, right, if they're masquerading as humans. In some ways, it's actually a word that could be equivalent to veil itself.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, because the notion of veil as barrier really comes from Christian and Jewish tradition of the veil in the temple, separating the outer temple from the inner sanctum. So yeah, that's a really good point.
1: There, Yeah, there are other cultures in the ancient Mediterranean that use veils too, like the Vestal Virgins of Rome, for example, and other religious cults around the Mediterranean world. So it's even in keeping with all of this sort of Greek nymphic imagery that we're getting and other Greek mythological imagery that we're getting. I will say one more thing about liminal spaces or or boundaries or borders, which is that much of the narrative of this section is about the narrator learning to be the warden of a doorway, to guard a boundary. And in fact, we get Marsh having to go through this boundary, he does this with ease because it turns out the narrator's not actually all that good at doing this just yet. I mean, he's been on the job for three or four nights at this point, but that's even where we meet him is in this boundary
0: space. And then he's moved to like a worse boundary, like a, a purgatory. He's, he's immediately moved through the superficial into the real. If you want to characterize the artificial or superficial world and the dusty rot- that sustains it, that is explicit in this whole story so far. Well, the next name I have is Saint-Croix, which we already pointed out is the Holy Cross, the cross of Christ. The sister planet is named for Christ's grandmother. But I really get the sense that there is some defilement going on here. There's some desecration on Saint-Croix. Before I get into the place Saint-Croix that exists, that the U.S. owns, Glenn, do you wanna maybe say anything about the name itself in relation to the mother planet or what that evokes for you in this story so far?
1: Yeah, for me, just encountering Saint Croix as a as a phrase just in the text here, you know, I immediately think of the cross as a relic. The fragments of the cross as a relic. This is a very big deal in the period that I work on of, of late antiquity. This is something that Constantine finds, he discovers the the true cross, and he makes it, it into a holy relic that people can come and see and be healed from. Uh, it occupies a real central place in the religious life then of late antiquity. Uh, it is also something that is actually stolen by Persians in a war. And so to my mind, this actually always calls up religious colonialism, right? Where the symbols of someone's religion are something that you want to take from them when you are fighting them. And given that we are seeing colonialism here in this story, I don't know, that image to me sort of just made sense, at least on an emotional level, if not on a real explicit level. But there is one more thing that I want to say actually about Saint Anne that I had thought about in our last episode but didn't bring up, which is just to say that St. Anne is actually someone who, you know, comes in and out of fashion as sort of all of these saints do, but she was someone who was quite in fashion during the French colonization of the New World. So most of the churches that are named for St. Anne appear in the New World, in particular in, in French speaking Canada, but also there were a lot of them in the state of Maine. And so finding Maine invoked here in this text as well, all of this just suggests to me that Wolf really knows exactly what he's doing. He's not just sort of picking these names out of a hat or you know, knowing sort of maybe 10% of the significance of these names. He knows that Saint Anne is a name that actually is really wrapped up in French colonialism. And if he's going to have a planet with French colonialism, then that's the name that he needs.
0: Yes. And so is the name of Saint-Croix. Because it's an island that is right now owned by the U.S. It's the U.S. Virgin Islands, along with St. Thomas and St. John. But the story there is that Columbus landed on the island and was attacked by the natives. Like that was his first encounter with the New World. But by the end of the 16th century so this is uh, 100, 200 years after Columbus discovers this island the native population was either dispersed or killed in its entirety. And the island has a history of colonization by the English, French, and Danish, who sold it to the US in 1916 for $25 million in gold. Now, I don't know, the Dutch have a very odd history with World War I, which is like when you see 1916 and $25 million in gold, there's something going on there. Their economy was very heavily dependent on much of Europe that was at war that could no longer support them, and they did not fight that much in World War One. In fact, it's not even really a big part of their history. But the U.S. bought this group of islands from them in 1916. So the place itself also has this crazy 500-year-old history of colonization that's being taken over by the French than the English, than the Dutch, or the Dutch-French, and all this crazy stuff is going on. So these are really aptly named places. Right. And San Croix
1: and, and so many of these Caribbean islands, in fact, have waxed and waned in their significance to the empires that possess them. And that seems to be something that we're getting here in this story as well, in this conversation, about how there are fewer people here now than there were 50 years ago, right? I think we have to imagine that 50 years ago that this settlement was more important. There was a reason that people went there, but now less important. It also seems clear, by inference at least, that St. Anne actually is still important, that St. Anne is the place that people might go to from Earth, that starcrossers, spaceships come from St. Anne to St. Croix, they don't ever go the other way unless they're bringing people back.
0: Right. And definitely nobody from Earth comes because the narrator doesn't even think that a starcrosser would have come to St. Croix from Earth. It could only be from St. Anne.
1: Right. And so I think what we're seeing here is this planet that at one point was important when slave plantations of sugarcane were of economic vitality to Earth. That's a metaphor. But they're just not now, right? That the economy of Earth has moved on to some other thing. And so now St. Croix is, in fact, a backwater and is very much atrophied, right? That its culture is still this colonial culture that that they don't even have universities, they don't have heavy industry, which are things that certainly abound on Earth. We get this great contrast between the housing situation on St. Croix and the housing situation back on Earth, for example. And I'm looking forward to seeing if we're going to get to see any of Saint Anne, to see
0: what that planet is like. Yeah, I'd be really interested to see that planet as well. Well, the next name we have is the aunt of Phaedria. Her name is Araini. That name is the feminine of Uranus, the planet, but also mythological figure. I have to think that this is really a form of Urania, and this name means heavenly or from the sky. She is a muse in Greek mythology. She's the muse of astronomy. But more importantly, I think she's also evoked by poets, including John Milton in Paradise Lost she is evoked in book seven of that great poem, in which Raphael, the angel, tells Adam and Eve about the creation of earth and the creation of the new race of man. And Raphael sort of sums up how this decision is made after Satan and his followers are expelled from heaven, from the sky, and God wants to start over, which he gives the power uh, of his son, to do So I don't have too much to say about this name at this time. I just want us to be alerted to the fact that we're now talking about a name that is evoked in a, a literature about creation, about the Christian tradition or Christian mythology, as Milton kind of turns much of Christianity into. But I think there's something going on here with this expulsion from the sky into a new place, or the creation of a new race that we'll want to pay attention to as an illusion in this story. But I really think when we get to the last name here, apart from Mr. Million, we're going to have a lot to say about consciousness, about sentient beings, about souls that we'll be leaning on this sort of story for.
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure specifically how to map this onto the text yet. But it is clear that there are questions about who the people on this planet are, and where they came from, and how many different types of people, how many different species, in fact, there are on this planet right now.
0: Yeah. And whether they're devils, or humans, or angels, or what, there is a spiritual hierarchy at play here as well.
1: You've been saving the, the most important name for last, so let, let's get to it.
0: Right. So this is Phaedria, And it, this evokes to me right off the bat, Phaedra, the son of Minos, the wife of Theseus, She is not a character in Greek stories that really ends up in a good place. But secondly, Glenn, you brought this up to me the other day. Her name evokes the Socratic dialogue, Phaedrus, which is really heavily involved with the nature of souls, the difference between being a lover and a friend, which is a language that's evoked that Wolf uses in this section. The impact of muses on the souls of mankind, which here we have the name of a muse and the name of a Socratic dialogue, kind of about muses. And again, we're talking about these different races. There is a lot of mythology in this dialogue. There are souls that belong to gods, there are souls that are able to maintain their status as souls outside of the confines of the body, and there are souls that, you know, quote, lose their wings. So I'd like you to comment on that, but I'm going to connect this to Mr. Million in just a second. Yeah, that's really the crux
1: of where we want to go with this. So I'm actually going to back us up just a little bit in this name. There's, again, like with all these names, there are layers upon layers of wolfy puns going on here. So the first thing that I'll say about this is that Phaedria itself, this is a a modern invention. It, It is a Anglicization of a Greek name. It might even really just be a bastardization. Someone didn't quite understand that that I doesn't quite belong there. Uh, This name is originated then by Edmund Spencer, the early modern English poet, and he uses this in his poem, The Fairy Queen. Fedria appears in book two, where she is one of several villains or antagonists for the knightly hero of this very late stage chivalric romance. In that text, she is really an allegory for temptation. And I think that's what Wolfe wants us to be thinking about here, which is also why he's borrowing Chandler's femme fatale language when he's describing her. This is Wolfe really inserting himself into this long tradition of beautiful but evil temptresses. I'll say one more thing about her too, which is that in the poem, she seems to live on a boat. She's actually rowing on a river most of the time. So we, we've got some more really nautical, nymphic imagery here for our motif. But let's get to the real thing here, which is this question of souls, right? So phaedra, this sound in ancient Greek means bright or brightness or light. And of course, right, we know that wolf's most common motif is light and shadow. And so here it is, this light right here. But yes, as you said, the Phaedras is one of Plato's strangest dialogues. It's also a very beautiful text. But it is taken up with, in part, at least it has this digression that is taken up with the transmigration of souls or, or metempsychosis, as it would be in Greek. And As you're about to point out and explicate and probably have a lot of questions about, that's exactly what Mr. Million's origin story is. This Mr. Million is a person who has migrated his consciousness from a biological body to a machine body. It's amazing that Wolf is doing all of this with the name of some girl in a park.
0: Right. And I totally forgot to mention the meaning of her name, which is like bright or light. And that ties directly into Milton as well with this, this expulsion of Satan from heaven. Satan's name is Lucifer. It literally means like light bringer. And he was, in Milton's Paradise Lost, the best creation that God made until he... Rebelled and so we have these evocation. I have to believe that Wolf is familiar with this evocation of Irania in Paradise Lost, especially as it refers to souls, mankind, the expulsion of Lucifer from heaven, and then going right to this woman and putting her in the stream of femme fatales and tying her right into this imagery of light. And I think we're seeing here that Wolf is reversing the expected value of light and darkness in the story really right off the bat, though it's not right off the bat. This is extremely obscure. Yeah. I mean, it is
1: really deep. I mean, because certainly you can read this text and just enjoy the heck out of it without gleaning any of this meaning. It is absolutely possible to enjoy this text as, you know, a 12 year old novice reader who hasn't encountered these texts yet and still enjoy it. But it is so fantastic to really unpack everything that Wolf is doing. I have found myself, Brandon, I don't know if you've done this, but I have found myself imagining Wolf at his typewriter composing this text in 1970. And I, when I do this every time, I, think, I just picture him laughing giddily, laughing gleefully to himself as he throws in allusion after allusion after allusion and ties in you know, 2,000 years, 2,500 years worth of Western literary tradition into this sci-fi novella.
0: Yeah, I think there's some cackling involved, to be sure. Cackling's the word I was looking for. That's right. (laughs) So let's review Mr. Million here. He is not Mr. Million. In fact, his name is M. Million, which is a billion. He is an unbound simulator whose name, that name Mr. Million, is his being. There is no separation like with Aubrey Vale and Aunt Janine here in terms of being. This is somebody who is actually two beings who whose one identity has entirely subsumed the other one. He was once the narrator's descendant, but for some reason, has chosen to undergo the process of placing his consciousness or soul. And we've talked in past episodes about how these are really interchangeable ideas. This is the notion of the soul as the animating presence in the human being. In Plato, as we're going to see, it is the selfless mover, the unmoved mover. It is the sense of being that is in contact with the highest form of the divine. So Mr. Million, also in more recent Philosophy 101, Philosophy of Mind terms, is literally the ghost in the machine. So we're going to talk here very briefly how this connects to Phaedrus, or Phaedrus, the Socratic dialogue, and Milton. I've got a paragraph here. So Phaedrus (laughs) Phaedrus is a Socratic dialogue that has a big chunk of it involving how souls, which are immortal beings and Plato leans heavily into angelic imagery here. They are winged beings who have lost their wings. The souls have lost their wings and have fallen, in a sense, from the sky where they live with the gods and been placed into this inanimate object, this body, in order to animate it. There is an explanation in this dialogue of why souls lose their wings. I'm not going to get into it. But once lost, once the wings are lost, the only way to regain them is really either to be a philosopher or a lover. And this is because both of these ways of being, ways of life, reorient the soul to the voice and the direction of truth, beauty, and the divine. The soul can regain its wings by living perfectly. It can leave its earthly prison and return to the sky with the other souls with its wings. But it could take thousands of years and much suffering and much correction and potentially even much punishment. That being said, Mr. Million is endlessly trapped in his body. His life is artificially elongated. His duty is to repeat his lessons year after year for generations of clones. And this, in my mind, is just the ultimate punishment. It's the soul that can never regain its wings because it can never die and return to its source. It can't even engage in that corrective action. It can't wait the 10,000 years to return to a body. Mr. Million is the character in this story that is, I think, in Wolf's mind, explicitly in hell. It is the soul entrapped in the underworld in in multiple levels. There are also three parts to the soul, like there are three heads of Cerberus. There's the noble part of the soul, which in the dialogue is represented as this kind of white uh, horse that's flawless. There's the reckless or heedless part of the soul that's this dark horse that just is wild. And then there is the pilot the charioteer, the one that holds the two horses in balance, forcing it to do its bidding, yielding at different times to the noble or the reckless urges. I have a question about what that might say about the scientific portion of this, but let's talk about Mr. Million. Let's talk about this sense of the Abos coming from St. Anne, falling into St. Croix, and what is just going on with all of this really complicated imagery that it might be impossible to really unpack here?
1: Yeah, I love this idea of Mr. Million as being trapped in hell, a soul that should have gone to heaven when it died, but in fact went somewhere else. And there's a lot perhaps going on there that we might want to unpack, you know, here or perhaps in, a, in another episode. But thinking about this notion of souls and and being trapped of, of having to struggle right to get your wings back to get out of hell to get back to the original condition that you were made in this the pristine uh, heavenly condition if we think about that in terms of the abos right and veil's hypothesis is it possible that what is going on with the abos is that in fact they did masquerade as humans, and they can't figure out how to get out of it. They actually maybe have lost their ability to transform, as the narrator understood the hypothesis to be, even though his aunt, the originator of this, chastised him for that. I guess just to sum it up, have the Abos become humans, and they can't figure out how to stop being humans such that they are trapped in their own special kind of hell. That might be the imagery that's being used here.
0: I really think so. And I think, I think it's the case, especially when you think of the imagery of the angels, the rebelling angels being expelled from heaven, that this world of Saint Croix is named after an event in history that has redeemed humanity, uh, but maybe has not yet reached this other culture. And in the fact that they left their Eden willingly or through some sort of conflict that they were too proud to remain there, they saw the advances of the worlds around them, or the colonists of St. Anne expelled them, they have, in some sense, fallen and cannot regain the ability to return to the sky. They've lost their sense of flight.
1: So this is a huge question that I have about the way that this story is functioning, but in particular, the way that the imagery is functioning, especially around this question of the Abbo's. Why is this story on Saint-Croix and not on... Saint Anne, where the Abos are actually from. What you've brought up here is this imagery of falling or of, of migration or expulsion, really. And so something that has not occurred to me at all while reading the text, but has occurred to me while we've been talking tonight is, is it possible that everyone on Saint Anne and everyone on earth knows that the inhabitants of San Qua are Abos who are masquerading as humans?
0: Everyone knows except for the abos. The abos themselves. Yeah, right, yeah. I think that's entirely possible. That that is kind of implicit in Vale's hypothesis. We're not given a counter hypothesis to what happened. I think the implication is that there definitely was a touchdown at some point of the abos to St. Croix from St. Anne. I think that's explicit. That's not what's being questioned. What's being questioned is what happened to them. And so Vail's hypothesis is an attempt to answer what happened to them, is that we are them, and they are us, and that this is actually the formation, perhaps, of a new race. But it's a race that, because it has lost its ability to change, is frozen culturally, but also frozen in, in a way that, like, ethnically, that the only way they can change is through these artificial means, like plastic surgery— and that the people that can't afford that, the combined race that remains, that can't participate in the economic system of this hell, really, is forced to be a reminder of the monstrosity of this combined race, like this Aunt Arani. This is called Brandon's Hypothesis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I find it very interesting. I, I don't know that we're going to get this actually substantiated one way or the other in this novella, but I do think that we will get more about this as the, the collection progresses.
0: Well, I think there's one more question regarding the three parts of the soul, the symbolism of the novel, and the symbolism regarding the three heads of Cerberus being mapped onto actual characters. And so, again, we have the noble, the reckless, and the pilot who kind of is in the driver's seat. Is cloning, as it is symbolized by Cerberus in this story, with each clone having a different head, somehow meant to evoke the tearing apart of the soul into its constituent parts so that it can never be restored back to itself? Is cloning, in a sense, in, in Wolf's mind, given this imagery we've just gone through, and these illusions, an ethical problem in that it rips the soul into pieces so that it can never actually get its wings back? And so you're left with the parts of the soul in more and more diluted conditions, in diluted evil, in deluded nobility, and in diluted control.
1: Well, Wolf certainly seems to be very concerned about this question of identity or identities even in this story. And so one of the questions I think that we have to ask is if we start from a premise that each creature, every creature has a body, but also has a soul, right? This sort of spiritual component, this sort of binary of body and soul that each person has, when you are cloning someone, you are simply copying right you 're replicating one half of that identity, the physical part of that identity. What happens then to the spiritual part of that identity right that 's what you're you 're getting at here in the question of is it diluted i think is a word that you used or, or or fractured or split up as you are multiplying the bodies does the soul does the soul also have to get? multiplied, fragmented, so that some of it can inhabit each of the bodies. If that's so, then are any of these clones, any of these descendants of the original Gene Wolf, are any of them fully persons? Are any of them fully human? Are any of them fully ensouled? I think that's certainly a problem for a Christian thinker, wrestling with the problem of cloning
0: right and then when you compare this also to to Mr. Million that his all he has is his soul and no body and it is the function of the soul at least in the in what becomes Neoplatonic philosophy, which influences Christianity in a big way, to return to the source of goodness and beauty, to partake in it fully, that there is a sense that the body is bad and the soul is good. There's a real dichotomy there between the body and soul, talking about binary systems, um, that Mr. Million is a pure soul trapped in a body, and that these clones are pure bodies with limited souls, and there's just corruption everywhere as a result. And that may be even worse. The perfect marriage of these things, the, the abos perhaps, have so lost their way that they are just themselves, both body and soul, being eroded. And so this, this to me, could not be more explicitly a story about life in hell. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean it's an awful place. I mean this is a place with child sex slavery as a matter of course, uh, something that doesn't even need commenting on or, or hiding. That the elite of the society are engaged in that activity. They come to the house. They come to the Maison de Chien without a veil. Right? They do this openly. The teenage boys that Phaedria knows pretend that they actually go to the house. They brag about. Going to the Maison du Chien and partaking of the sex slaves who are there as a way of announcing their full adulthood. This is absolutely twisted and horrifying. This is utterly hellish. But we also have this society, right, that is completely shaped by greed, right? This is the society here of the Merchant of Venice that Wolf is drawing on. It has no other concerns than that. This is a society in which a man has a daughter only as a tool for his own material gain, that she is an asset that he wants to use to help make business connections that will further enrich him. And if that's not possible, then she is the way that he is hedging his own bets. We get no sense at all that he loves her, cares about her, regards her even as a person. What's worse, even, is that she knows this. She's the one who is telling the narrator this information, and she does this matter of factly as if, of course, that's what a daughter is for.
0: Well, not only matter of factly, but in a a mercenary way that she is setting up her own future as well. That she is trying to pick the best of her future in much the way that the classic femme fatales in awful situations in pulp and noir novels are really trying to take control in the best way they can of a situation they know they can't change and be happy about it. Look, There are people, both men and women, that are suited to this type of manipulation, this type of mercenary action. I think also part of what makes Aunt Irene so monstrous is the fact that she is actually a kind of pure being, that she is concerned for this girl, that she is trying to protect her from taking these mercenary steps. And that the little story we get in the background is the aunt protecting her niece and being overruled by the family because the family needs the niece to eat Cantonese egg rolls with the son of the best brothel in Port Mumizan. So how do you think then that she
1: compares to Mr. Million? Or, or maybe a better question is, if that's what we think about her how do we read Mr. Million as the sort of counterpart of the narrator and David?
0: That's really what I was thinking about when I was tracking the emotions of Mr. Million, his chuckling, his book reading, his sorrow of his great-great-grandchild or whatever, how many generations removed that that boy is from him um, in terms of the, the cloning, is that Mr. Million is the character here that is on his way to redemption. You actually have to hope for his destruction in this story, his physical destruction, because he is at this point in his life being opened once again as an artificial creation in some way to beauty, to love, and to truth. I think that's represented, the truth is probably represented by the book, and this is straight out of the Phaedrus, is that this is the character... Of the soul that only takes 3,000 years to regenerate instead of 10,000 years. But it's the soul that gets its wings back. But presumably,
1: Mr. Million is also the person, or at least the person who becomes Mr. Million, the human body who becomes Mr. Million, is also the person who began the cloning experiments, right? Which is this villainous, this evil enterprise that is really violating God's creation. So, is his redemption, you know, you keep using, you've, you've been using this word redemption. Is he being redeemed from that action? Is that what he needs redeeming from?
0: I think if we're talking in terms of the Phaedrus, we are talking about a soul that is in its prison, that is facing its time of correction and suffering and punishment, that now forever, maybe up to 10,000 years, it has to witness the consequences of its action throughout that whole span of time. And what we're seeing is maybe the hope that it will soon be able to become a soul again and be able to get another shot at this whole life thing, because that's what happens to souls. Souls return to the source. It's this endless returning and falling not every soul keeps its wings forever. That's the philosopher and the lover, which are both types of madmen who are influenced by the muses. They can hear the voice of the divine and they respond to it and people think they're mad. But they're the nearest to that eternal return without losing their wings again. Maybe they have their wings for a really long time after that.
1: Well, Brandon, this has been a really fascinating dive into the nature of souls and how we're seeing that expressed in a lot of different forms in this story. And it has raised for me a lot of questions about who Mr. Million is, about who's actually in charge in the household, what Mr. Million's personal goals are? What were the goals of the person who became Mr. Million? But I think we're going to have to save those questions for probably our wrap up episode when we've actually got the whole story in front of us to talk about.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think it was absolutely brilliant of you to point out kind of the connection of the name Phaedria and the and the Phaedrus and this is the real joy of close reading is when you dig into these names and their connections in history and etymology and you're working with a writer who was on the level of Wolf, the conversation just never ends. There's always more to talk about and, and you get great spin off conversations, but We have to keep it to this work. And uh, there's a lot more questions we have that I'm sure will be answered as we've seen our past questions answered in this novella. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and
1: our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
0: Head over to the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you thought of this section that we covered today. I raised a lot of questions in the recap that we weren't able to go over. I think we raised a lot in the discussion that demands more questions. So bring them up. Like Our forum discussions can can really be a lot of fun. And I think we can all benefit from multiple perspectives on this text. Yeah. And I'd love to know what allusions we've actually missed in
1: this text that is packed full of them. Next time, we're going to continue The Fifth Head of Cerberus by reading uh, pages 51 to 66 in that 1994 Orb edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.